Welcome to episode four of Being Jewish. My name is Seth. I'm Dave, and we have made it this far. Four. That's right. We magic four. That's my lucky number. So this is going to be our best episode yet. Might uh, we have coming four to questions you... on this four episode? That's right. Uh, why is this podcast different from all other podcasts? Um, we're coming to you on the heels of the verdict uh, in the Pittsburgh shooting, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting of 2018. Um, this was a shooting. This was a mass shooting. Now, there are so many mass shootings in the United States. This kind of gets drowned out because there have been hundreds since then. Uh, but this one was at a synagogue and there were 11 people killed. And uh, the uh, person who did it uh, was found guilty. Uh, and now we are waiting sentencing. Um, this was something that shook synagogues all over the United States to the core. And immediately synagogues had to react. Uh, a lot of them had to beef up security and a lot of public police forces had to make sure that places of worship, not just uh, Jewish temples, uh, were protected with extra security on the heels of it. And it really changed the way everything takes place. And now, I mean, just as an example, I'll be a perfect example. There was a book I wanted to leave for you. And I had to jump through 17 hoops just to get into the building, just to, to give it to somebody to give to you. And no one believes anything. I mean, it, it, it's, it's very, very intense security. Those places are, are, are built. They are fortresses now. Um, and, it, it and, and this sense. is on the heels of the Pittsburgh shooting. It makes sense if we look at anti-Semitism on the whole, as well as hate crimes. When we focus on anti-Semitism, the Anti-Defamation League, they released data and 2022, which is later than 2018, but 2022 has had the highest number of anti-Semitic rates since 1979. And the number of incidents, many of which are violent, has increased fivefold from 2013. And we also know that a minority of these incidents are actually reported. So what is going on is really quite frightening. And at the end of that spectrum, we have these kinds of shootings, right? We had that in Colleyville. And thank God that one uh, ended a lot better than what happened at Tree of Life Synagogue. And it's not just police forces. We have Homeland Security on this. We have the FBI in this. And we're all in regular conversations uh, with these organizations, uh, along with numerous other ones that are both advising us and uh, keeping uh, flowing a f uh, information that we might need, that we can use, that we can help to make sure that our place, while a sanctuary for all in need, is also a fortress keeping everyone safe. Where were you when you heard that news of that shooting and what what were your responsibilities as a rabbi at that moment? I had just finished leading services, actually, at my last synagogue in Edison, New Jersey, and text messages just started flowing and it was frightening. And following that, we 
immediately needed to start having meetings discussing synagogue security and how we were going to beef it up. And for some synagogues, including the one I was at, it is incredibly difficult because many places do not have the budget to actually cover the cost of the security. Homeland Security has given out grants for security infrastructure, but the cost of having guards on hand, it, it, it's expensive, very expensive. And so a lot of different places struggle to make the decisions that they can manage as a community to keep their people safe. And a lot of places have to make very hard decisions. I remember that weekend they announced they had a uh, a service. Uh, it wasn't like a religious service. They had a a, a, a meeting, uh, and everybody was invited, and the place was packed. And I remember uh, the synagogue that you're the rabbi of now that I belong to. I remember that they had opened the the partitions in the walls, so it, because there were that many people uh, there, I remember we barely got a seat. And Governor Murphy was there and gave an impassioned speech. And I was very ambivalent toward Governor Murphy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I was very ambivalent toward him. Uh, I didn't have strong feelings for or against. I was he was fine. You know, he I liked him better than Chris Christie. Um, <laughs> Chris Christie, <laughs> you know, don't forget uh, Bridgegate, you know, the George Washington Bridge and 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 all of that stuff. Um you know, Murphy was fine, but I didn't have a, a, a passion for him. Um, I really uh, I was so inspired by Governor Murphy, um, who was a friend of the rabbi that preceded you, Rabbi Colwyn. Um, and they he came uh, wasn't like a campaign stop. It didn't feel uh, like anything political. It was just this speech to rally the community. And don't forget, we, we live in New Jersey. We're not in Pittsburgh. You know, other people, other community leaders did so in Pittsburgh. Well, I just remember being there and I just remember feeling a great sense of pride, not just for the temple that I had chosen, but I really was glad for the governor I voted for. I, I liked him. I, I really was. And then when he dealt with COVID, and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent. I had that in the back of my mind because I didn't agree with everything he was doing. You know, no po no political leader handled COVID perfectly, right? No. Like, no secret about that. Nobody did because things were changing all all the time. It doesn't matter you whether right left, you couldn't have. You also can't handle something perfectly if you don't know what it is or how it Correct. works. We're still learning. So Murphy, when when and Murphy, well, to to his credit, what he would do was he would literally sometimes shrug his shoulders like, uh, I think we're doing the right thing. Like we're trying, and I had that. In the back of my mind, I just remembered him on that day. And I remembered uh, just feeling a connection with him. I didn't shake his hand. I didn't go up to him. I didn't meet him. I just was so inspired by him. And that has carried me to this day. Well, we remember the people who are there for us, particularly in difficult times, right? Anyone who has been in a hospital for surgery or for several days or longer will remember most people who came to visit them if they were awake, yep. right? You know who shows up. And while this happened in Pittsburgh, it hits Jews everywhere, right? Our bubble of safety as Jews in America is broken. It's not like it would have been in Germany in that we have the law on our side. Thank God we have the police and, uh, 
and other departments of security in the state on our side, as well as many incredible neighbors. But people are emboldened to carry out awful acts of violence, awful acts of anti-Semitism. And it is, it's growing. It's a frightening time. And so, so many people coming together at the synagogue in New Jersey, it's not just feeling for that synagogue in Pittsburgh, it's feeling for us because uh, one Jew is attacked in this nation. That's our people. Yeah. There's a community there. There's a, there's a kinship. It's kind of how a lot of the stuff that had been going on led you and I to talking about this and led us to saying, Hey, maybe we should do a podcast. Oh yeah. That was how it came about. I mean, that it, the origin of this podcast was you and I were just talking about things and it was rampant. It was rampant. There's stuff in our community. Well, when things get hard, you know, the first thing to do is show up for someone in empathy. The second thing to do is start a podcast. Right. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Of course. So now, now that he's been found guilty, they're awaiting sentencing. So now that he has been found guilty, uh, the next phase of the trial has to determine whether or not he will face the death penalty or life in prison. Uh, that is that second phase, according to the U.S. District Judge, is set to begin June 26th. So if you're listening to this podcast the week it's released, that's uh, next week. In essence, June 26th, you know, about six days from the release of this podcast. It may be that this murderer is given the uh, given the death penalty. And this is a tricky topic in Judaism, right? We look at the Torah and there are all sorts of things for which the consequence is death, right? Often death by stoning, communal stoning. You know, you kill another person, uh, specifically in the form of murder, not manslaughter or in war. There's the death penalty, idol worship, death penalty. Uh, and you have it for other religious violations, like uh, desecrating Shabbat, right? And uh, another one is if you continually disobey your parents and your parents cannot control you, right? They didn't send the kid to military boarding school. It was death penalty, which is harsh. But if we look at it in that ancient world, you know, the death penalty for religious practice, you could say that our system of belief was so fragile that it could not take, we could not take any risks that someone would move us in a direction of idolatry, which is what surrounded us, which was unethical and which involved worse, like things like child sacrifice. You, we also were in a world back then where people killed folks for lesser reasons. There is a tradition of killing people uh, if you had to respond to someone accidentally killing one of your loved ones, right? Uh, uh, what's the term for it? Blood, blood guilt. So, can you cut that part? So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, in ancient times, there were. The equivalent of death sentences or killing for something that was not a capital offense or religiously. Let's say you did something that accidentally resulted in someone's death. Today, we would define that as manslaughter. Manslaughter, yeah. 
it was there wasn't a death penalty. However, the next of kin to the person who was killed would probably, out of uh, obligation to their kin, come after you and try to kill you as revenge to uh, deal with your blood guilt. So much so that the ancient Israelites set up cities of refuge where these people guilty of manslaughter could flee. And if they got there, they were safe. And But the second that they would step out, then that person could kill them again. So we see a lot of death penalty in a world where there was a lot of killing, sadly. Well, in this case, uh, the prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. Defense lawyers have filed motions uh, that the, uh, the, the guilty... Uh, I don't. I don't like using his name. I ha I hate when no, media. Let's blot his name out. Right. Um, suffers from schizophrenia and epilepsy. Um, those are considered mitigating factors against capital punishment. Um, prosecutors rejected a defense offer of a plea agreement that could have resulted in uh, life in prison, um, and the judge permitted prosecutors to conduct their own psychiatric analysis of. The accused in the days before the trial, uh, although the results remain confidential and they're going for capital punishment, I would think it would be unethical if they could determine that he, there was some kind of mental illness. Um, it would be unethical for them to go for uh, the death penalty regardless. Um, if you if you if you do that, I do understand all of that, the mitigating factors. Uh, they're going for the death penalty. I mean, they're going yeah. for it. This is a state that allows it. They're going for it. They said it could take six weeks. The second phase could take six weeks. We're not going to know till midsummer. And, and then there's appeals. I mean, the the, right. the execution this will... of this guy could be. This could be years. Right. Judaism has come a long way from the time of the Torah where uh, the death penalty is called for. We couldn't, in rabbinic times, deal and put away these commands to kill folks. So what they did is they made it near impossible because they did not want blood on their hands. Because as a society who enacts death penalties, there's blood on your hands. And yes, we are not pacifists. There are times where war is required. But if we're talking about a crime... There are other ways to deal with a criminal, right? Our Midrash teaches us that uh, you take a human life, you are destroying an entire universe. And while this human being is absolutely awful in the choices that he made, you never know after 20 years in prison where this person will be. If perhaps even in a lifetime in prison, he might do something that contributes to humanity right? He may learn the wrongdoing of his, or the wrongfulness of his ways, and perhaps be useful in bringing over anti, other anti-Semites and making a difference. We don't know. So to execute someone for the awful crimes that they did, it shuts down that entire universe of possibility. And so if we look at what the rabbis had to say, the courts the, the the high court in the in the rabbinic world was the sanhedrin and they said that in order to bring about capital punishment 
they had to be unanimous in their decision. Uh, the Sanhedrin would have 23 judges. However, the Talmud tells us that if the case was rendered too quickly, then they would veto that execution because they felt that the judges wouldn't have had given enough time to it. They also said that the offense had to be witnessed by two people who were able to report on it from close up. Today, cameras would eliminate that. But ultimately, the rabbi said that if a Sanhedrin executed even one person in a period of seven years, that Sanhedrin was determined to be destructive. And other rabbis said, actually, we're talking about a period of 70 years that we hope that you will never, ever do that because that is a stain upon the court to do that. So we have the option for death penalty, but there's a recognition that no matter what that person has done, it is something awful for us as a society to do it. We still have done it as a society, right? We had, you know, in Israel, we hung Eichmann, we hung other Nazis, right? At some point, there may be a limit, but we still have to think, is a death penalty best for us? I mean, what do you think, Seth? You know, I've been asked this so many times in my life. Um I'd have to experience it firsthand, and I hope I never do. Uh, the closest I ever came to a violent, you know, being the victim or knowing somebody who was the victim of a violent crime, uh, my best friend was killed in a murder, um, but it was a murder suicide. You know, it was yeah. it was it was different. Um, uh, I hate what's happened with these mass shootings all the time. And what what I hate has happened is I want these uh, these awful killers uh, to be taken alive so that we can have, you know, a trial and 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 get justice, you know, for the victims and their families. Um, but I, I don't know, I I covered for a day. <laughs> this is a goofy story um, in nineteen ninety. Eight, I covered for a day uh, the Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bombing trial. Mm. Um, there was a guy in Denver, this guy named Lee Frank, really good friend of mine, and um, he had something to do with his kid. And the deal was, was if you lost your seat in the courtroom, you lost your seat. <laughs> you know, like yeah. So he said to me, he said, "I need you to sit in my seat for a day." And he, you know, he asked me to do him a favor. So I went to the trial for a day and I heard all the, it was the opening statements and I, I heard everything and I, I, I kind of understood it, you know, and I, 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 all these victims and I, you know, I, I see it. I, I do understand that it doesn't bring the victims back. Um, but these, these crimes are horrific and horrific brings horrific decisions. It doesn't make you feel good. You know, I, I don't think it brings satisfaction, but it is a form of justice. We have to remember, though, justice, right? What is justice? It, the interpretation may not always be the best one. I have to correct myself because I just checked. The death penalty, at least in modern Israel's history, has only happened twice. One was for someone who... Uh, 
he he was uh, confirmed uh, to be guilty of treason after a court martial, but he didn't have any legal representation. And later he was exonerated. So that right there, one of their death penalties was one that shouldn't have happened. And the other one was Adolf Eichmann, who was the senior SS officer and leading architect of the Holocaust. He was actually the only one who was executed there. And right now, that current law allows for the death penalty only in circumstances where they are crimes related to the Holocaust or treason committed by a soldier during wartime, because that is something that could very much endanger everyone else and put them at risk. So very severe circumstances. But to kill someone who has killed another or even more, where does that take us, right? As a society, that means we're putting on our hands the same thing that that person put on their hands. You know, and and one of the, the big arguments, especially from the right, uh, with uh, the, 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 the crisis that goes on with all the mass killings uh, that has been, you know, permeating our country is that there's a mental health crisis. And I firmly think that that's completely real. Um, that's absolutely a true statement that there is a mental health crisis and that more efforts need to be made towards the mental health and well-being of our citizens, especially in AR-15. I mean, it's uh, these. there's no reason for these guns to be on the streets. There's no, they're not used for hunting. Uh, they're not used, they're, they're, they're not used in defense. Um, they're only used for offensive reasons, and uh, they're mostly used for nefarious reasons. They're awful. There's no reason to have them. You know, I want extensive background checks. I'm not trying to take guns away from people who are lawfully owning guns. But when you hear these mass shootings and you find out that these people purchase guns, you know, with cash on street corners, it's just it's it's absurd. And right. uh, it's shameful. There is always room for teshuva, for turning things around. It doesn't mean you don't suffer the consequences of it. But someone can always come back and do the work to make a positive impact. Let's Here's one example. Derek Black, right? He was a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux. Sorry, his father was a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and created uh, Stormfront, which is an awful, uh, very large white nationalist site, right? And he grew up in the KKK, and after 22 years of his life in that movement, somehow he was turned around in conversation, what he left, and he renounced his views, and now he teaches and spreads the word against it and also shares how these things work, right? This guy should rot in prison for the rest of his life. But rotting in prison, or not literally rotting, hopefully, he could start doing some good. And it does not clean up what he did. But he still could make a difference. And if you execute him, there's no difference to be made. That's just one other life, one other guy who still has potential taken from this earth yeah. the answer to death can't be more death not unless 
he is actively a risk to someone else, right? If you need to kill someone because they could come kill you, if you need to go to war and that involves killing, it's awful, but you're still trying to save a life. This guy's this guy doesn't have the ability to take any more lives. So what are we going to do next? I'm all for life in prison mm-hmm. for something so heinous. There's some people who should definitely not be on the streets. What kind of society should have blood on their hands like this? I don't know. I hope it's not mine. Well, we'll pay, pay attention to this story and everything else. And you know what? We'll talk about it here on the podcast. Then hopefully have a happier ending next time. Yeah. Well, I still think, you know, as tragic as the 2018 shooting was, uh, the way communities uh, reacted to it uh, was was very positive. And I felt very um, connected to my community afterwards uh, on the heels of what was an awful, awful thing. And hopefully we come together, not just because of awful things happening, but because we realize we are better in this together as Jewish communities and as all communities. We're stronger when we go forward hand in hand. See you in two weeks, everyone. Two weeks. Stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble.